welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 3, just a few pages to your left from 1 Thessalonians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Now my mother likes to tell a story of when I was a, um, a little guy. We were apparently in a food court in a mall, um, and I had been a rambunctious boy at the time, and she was taking me out to get the swats that I had earned for the day. And on the way carrying me out of this food court, I started screaming, Help! I don't know her! <laughs> In those days, it wasn't that big of a deal apparently. And, I, and she says I was loud enough uh, about the hour prior to that that everybody knew I had belonged to her. But nonetheless, that was my defense. Help! I don't know her. I fear that there will be a day when we face the Lord Jesus and many who think they do know Him will have to confess, I don't know Him. And in a much more serious tone, they'll be saying help as well. Just state right up front this morning, a little abnormal for me, but... I couldn't figure out how else to get around it. How else to get to where I want to get. So let me just state right up front what my goal and purpose is this morning. It is for the lost to be genuinely saved. And for every single one of us to have a real honest examination of our faith. Now I don't want to be the one who sows seeds of doubt. But I do not regard the examination of our faith as a negative thing. Indeed, I believe God permits issues in our life to arise that would cause us maybe even an inkling of doubt so that we would look inward and ask, am I truly born again? Indeed, there is no greater question. Now, there is a balance here. We're supposed to have faith in the promises of God and And the promises of God are that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But in the manner that we call upon the name of the Lord, we could greatly err and have a false assurance of salvation. And for every pastor, indeed every genuine convert, that is a serious concern. False assurance of faith. Now, if you're... uh, Um, church historian of any degree, if you observe any sort of human history from a Christian perspective, you will admit with me that you see and witness and know there are many obstacles and hindrances and even excuses for why people don't place their faith in Jesus Christ. All sorts of, of obstacles arise for every generation and in every culture and in every age of, of human existence. These These hindrances that either flat out cause people to deny the existence of God or the need of salvation in Him, or my greater concern, 
lend them to a false assurance of real faith when they don't have true, genuine salvation. Now, as I said, every age and every generation, every culture, every place, every time has its own issues. But there are some issues that transcend all of those things. They transcend time. They transcend culture. They transcend location and geography. They transcend age. And they have been perpetual hindrances, perpetual obstacles to true, genuine, saving faith for human beings from all time. I'm not going to pretend to put a number on how many of those transcending hindrances there are, but I know there are at least two because we're going to look at them today in Philippians chapter 3. Paul has made a shift now in Philippians chapter 3. In verses 1, 2, and 3, he has given general instruction and explanation for that instruction, particularly the command and instruction of verse 1. But then to illustrate, in verse 4, he makes this shift. And he highlights in a very personal way through a personal narrative the truths that he's trying to express in verses 1, 2, and 3. And in that, he's going to highlight these two hindrances that get in the way of either true saving faith or true assurance of salvation. And at the end, he's going to say, cast these hindrances off. So look with me in verses 1, 2, and 3. And 4, 5, 6, and 7. Let's read those and then we'll come back and our main focus will be verses 4 through 7. Finally, my brothers, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That last phrase in verse verse 3 there, I put no confidence in the flesh, that's the gateway to the rest of chapter 3. He spends the rest of the text explaining that phrase, illustrating that phrase from this personal narrative, this personal recounting of his own life. So, for us to have a a full uh, understanding of the following verses, 4 through the end of the chapter, we need to consider again the nature of this last phrase in verse 3. Now, we considered it briefly last week. But it will do us greater benefit to consider it in more depth this morning. It's reference, this phrase, confidence in the flesh, it's referenced three times by Paul in these two verses. The last phrase of verse 3, twice more in verse 4. That's a, a literary tactic to say, pay attention. It's an obvious note of importance. 
The subject matter is going to pertain to confidence in the flesh. I want you to lock it in your mind. I want you to pay attention because this is what it's about. Confidence in the flesh. Now verse 3, however, is the only use of this phrase with an active ingredient attached to it. Because in verse 3 he says, put no confidence in the flesh. Now remember from last week, verse 3 is this description of what it means to be the circumcision of Christ that Paul references in Colossians chapter 3. I'm spilling a lot out at you here real quick. But it's this picture of what a, what a Christian actually is. A person who has been born again, their soul has been saved, and their heart has been transformed. They're no longer conquered or governed by the old sinful self. They are now ruled by the Spirit of Christ. Well, such a person person worships by the Spirit of God. Such a person glories in Christ Jesus. And finally there, verse 3, such a person, such a genuine Christian, puts no confidence in the flesh. The active ingredient there means that genuine Christians actively, by deliberate choice, deliberate decision, put off Trusting in themselves. That word confidence is important for us to consider. It's a word that means absolute, total trust. Unwavering devotion. Wholehearted assurance. Now Paul's not condemning confidence in general here. There are some things as Christians we're to have confidence in. Christ the Scriptures, the promises of God, those things we are to have confidence in. What Paul's condemning here is misplaced confidence. Confidence that's put in the flesh. This unwavering, entirely devoted, totally assured, completely certain, absolute trust in our own abilities. Specifically, just for clarity's sake here, our own abilities to earn God's love, favor, approval. Consider what he means by the word flesh. The Bible uses this word flesh in several different ways. Sometimes, and I think most rarely, it uses the word flesh to refer to just the physical body that you and I exist in. The flesh and bone that make us partly makes us human beings. More notable, more often, the Bible uses the term flesh to refer to this old self. This old sinful self. The sinful self that exists before we're saved in Christ and the sinful self that exists even still after we're saved in Christ. I believe it was Martin Luther who once said, I tried to drown the old sinful self only to discover discover that rascal could swim. We put off and die to the old self when we are saved, born again. We crucify the flesh along with its desires. And yet at the same time the Bible teaches us, there is this constant war between the new self and the old self. Galatians chapter 5 is the clear picture of this. There are many, but Galatians 5 is, is worth looking at. Let me flip over there just Briefly, many of you will know this reference. It's the war that exists constantly between living in the flesh and and living in the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 16 of Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. 
And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And on and on and on through that passage. The question back in Philippians 3, 3 is, in what sense does Paul refer to the flesh? This physical flesh? This spiritual flesh? The flesh before salvation in Christ? The flesh after salvation in Christ? What does he mean by no confidence in the flesh? I think the answer is yes. All of the above. He means we don't trust in the physical works that we can produce and conjure up by our own physical efforts. In other words, you put no confidence in the works of your hands to please God for salvation. No amount of your own physical effort will save you. Back to my friend Martin Luther. When he was struggling with salvation, he toiled in his monastery believing physical labor was partly going to be the good works that would earn him salvation. He toiled to such degree that what might take normal monks four hours to scrub the floor would take Martin six or eight. He spent so long one time trying to think of all of his sins to confess that he was finally told, you're a sick soul. The labors of our hands do not affect change on the spiritual inside of our hearts. But Paul also means this fleshly nature that we live with and before Christ that we live in. It's the wisdom, the thinking, the perspective, the outlook, the choices of that nature. In other words, the judgments of your own heart are corrupted by sin. And so when Paul writes and he says, we put no confidence in the flesh, he means we put no confidence in our ability to work for salvation. We put no confidence in our ability to discern our own way to salvation. The only way we arrive to the truth John chapter 6 is if the Father calls us, the Spirit enlivens us, calls us to faith in Him. So, this phrase, put no confidence in the flesh, is this all-encompassing, comprehensive look to say, there's nothing of your own ability, nothing of your own doing, either internally or externally, that will earn your standing before God. And then we come to verse 4 and 5, and he says, let me tell you by personal experience. So verse 4, this is Paul's personal rejection of confidence in the flesh. He picks up in verse 4 and says, though I have reason myself for confidence in the flesh also. In fact, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now this isn't boastful. It's actually far from it. There's a very pointed, purposeful lesson in his language here. If you looked into 1 Timothy 
chapter, it's chapter 1, verse 15, you'll find a certain understanding of Paul regarding his own nature, his own self. He calls himself in 1 Timothy 1.15, the foremost or the chief of sinners. He does that for a very specific reason. And I think the same principle is being applied here. That's how he views himself. As the chief or foremost of sinners. So in verse 4 he's saying, I am the foremost or chief person to have reason to boast in my flesh. To trust in my own efforts. To look to my own works. But also in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, he says, yes, I'm the foremost and chief of sinners so that in saving me, Jesus might display the power of His mercy to everyone else. Again, the same principle I think is being used here in verse 4 of Philippians 3. I, of all people, have reason to boast. I, of all people, have reason to place confidence in the flesh. I, of all people, have reason to trust in my own ability. And guess what? It means nothing. And I tell you that to say, if my ability means nothing, your ability means nothing. And so he highlights in verse 4, I have full reason to boast. Let me explain why. And then let me, let me tell you uh, what the world will, will, would call Paul's, Paul's life glorious and, and uh, triumphant and significant and important. He's going to come down and say, I regard as garbage and waste and worthless. Now the two things he mentions in verse 5 and 6 are the two biggest hindrances, I believe, to people having true, genuine salvation. They place confidence in their heritage and they place confidence in their behavior. And Paul addresses both and he comes to the end and says, neither one count for anything. Let's consider first Paul placing his confidence in his heritage. I have reason for confidence in the flesh. Here's my reason if I wanted to trust in myself. Verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, if you're, if you're not uh, Jewish or if you're not well-versed in the Old Testament, this seems like a rather awkward, rather unimportant detail to include in one's life. But when we know Paul's understanding, when we know the Bible's understanding of circumcision, we know the importance of this phrase. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is, from the very first days of infancy, I was walking in the law. Now, we know next to nothing about Paul's upbringing, about his parents, his family life, other than what we can deduce from these um, narratives where he recounts his testimony and his upbringing vaguely. But such a phrase like this is enough for us to conclude that Paul was raised in a family that definitely believed in the law. Because in Genesis chapter 17, we as we read last week, specifically verse 12, we find God making this covenant with Abram. And He says, you'll keep My covenant. And by keeping My covenant, I mean you and every male in Israel will be circumcised specifically on the eighth day. We find our Lord Jesus doing that to keep the law. And so Paul writes and he says, even before I could make my own choices, I was thrust into keeping, completing, obeying, following, being bound by the law. 
Now, remember, we also talked about the nature of circumcision. It's not just keeping the law. It's also identifying as God's people. Paul is highlighting here, being circumcised on the eighth day not only submitted my whole life to keeping the law, it also marked me out as one of God's chosen select people. That's his next point. I am an Israelite. It's nationalistic heritage that Paul points to now. I'm no pretender. I was circumcised on the eighth day. My parents did what was right. I'm religiously identifying with the God of the Old Testament. I'm keeping His covenant. I was walking in His ways. And I was part of His people. My life began with a nationalistic heritage that tied me to God. It's my identification. I'm not a foreigner. I wasn't a sojourner. I wasn't an imposter. I wasn't an Edomite or a Samaritan. I was an Israelite. And I had the birthright of the patriarchs marked out as part of God's people. We know the importance of this as we watch the Pharisees interact with Jesus. They often claim that they're right before God because they're the children of Abraham. And Paul's saying in verse 5, I could make that same claim. Even more specifically, I'm not just an Israelite in general. I am holy Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. A tribe above the other tribes. A tribe that stands out. So not only is my Jewish heritage so important to me that my family ancestry traces all the way back to Israel, to Jacob himself. I know what tribe I belong to. I belong to the tribe that comes from Jacob's loved wife, Rachel, who died giving birth to Benjamin. I come from the tribe that remained loyal to the covenant with David. That remained loyal to the tribe of Judah. When the kingdom split and there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south, I'm part of the tribe that remained loyal to God's people. I'm part of the tribe where Israel got its first king. That's probably why Paul was even named Saul before he was converted. To memorialize that he was from the tribe of Benjamin where Israel got its first king, Saul. I'm from the tribe that's land hosts the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. And more than that, I'm from the tribe upon whose land sits the temple. I am a Benjamin I come from the tribe of Benjamin. He summarizes then in verse 5. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. We know Saul came from Tarsus. That's where he was raised. But he was also sent, we know, to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 22, we're told that he studied under Gamaliel, a leading 
Pharisaic Hebrew scholar of his day. And Paul highlights even here, through and through, I'm the epitome of a Hebrew. These false teachers that I warned you about in verse 2, I was one of their leaders. I come from them. I was an example to them. And so if anyone has a claim on their heritage earning them favor with God, if anyone has a claim on their upbringing earning them favor with God, if anyone has a claim on their past earning them favor with God, it is Paul. And yet he writes, don't believe in those false teachers. Because I was a part of their belief and it's false. It's vain. He writes and he says, don't trust in your heritage. It means absolutely nothing. Church, I think in our particular context, this is perhaps the most meaningful point. You know, for the vast majority of our country's existence, people equated being American with being Christian. There are scores of Americans in hell right now because they died believing they were Christian due to their citizenship. It stems from something that I believe in called American exceptionalism. I'll save you a long, lengthy thing there. But it was the thought that America replaced Israel in God's idea and working of the world. And so... People believed that just because they were from the West, they were right with God. That prosperity in America was the proof of God's saving blessing. That American morals were biblical morals. And again, proof of God's saving blessing. That trend by and large over the last 30 or so years has declined significantly. But it's still absolutely true, primarily among churchgoers today. They identify with Christianity not because they've been born again, but because that's how they were raised. I've shared with you numerous times from this very pulpit that is one of my personal greatest concerns. The subtle belief among church-going people that I am right in my standing before God because this is how I was raised. My parents took me to church. My family is a Christian family. They led me to VBS, they led me to church, they taught me songs. I've even got a pastor in my family. 
The truth is, there are scores of people who believe themselves to be saved not because they're passionately in love with Jesus, but simply because socially they haven't known anything different. They're not Christian because they have a personal faith. They claim Christianity because of a personal background. Because of a personal inheritance. And Paul writes here in chapter 3 and says, your, your upbringing, your nationality, your heritage means nothing. The only thing the absolute only thing that matters in your standing with God is if Jesus Christ has washed you of all of your sins. And that only happens by coming to Him in faith and asking Him to do so. And as we studied Wednesday night, we have this wonderful promise from the Lord in John 6. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The second thing Paul expresses confidence in in this passage is in his behavior. And so he's leaving no stone unturned for our current cultural context. You may agree that heritage doesn't get you into heaven, but maybe you think your behavior does. Unless you think that, Paul has an answer for you. Your behavior doesn't earn you standing with God. He begins by telling us at the end of verse 5, when it came to the law, the law of God, he was a Pharisee. Now we all know something general about Pharisees. They were the people that were most often combatant with Jesus in the Gospels. But they were also the most strict devoted adherence to every last detail of the law. When it came to the, the sects of Ju Judaism, the, the groups of Judaism, they were probably the most accurate, though they wildly messed up in terms of application and the main points. But their devotion to keeping the law was renowned. They were known for even memorizing vast sections and chunks of the Old Testament law. They regarded themselves not just as the knowers and doers of the law, but even as the enforcers of the law. So when it comes down to keeping the law for Paul's day, there would be no higher designation than being that of a Pharisee. Paul might as well have said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In verse 6, he says, I'm not just strict keeping the law. I don't just have belief in the law. I'm not just an enforcer of the law. I was also the most passionate. When it came to zeal, he says, I was a persecutor of, of the church. That would become his greatest regret in life. In Acts chapter 9, we learn Paul didn't just persecute the church, but by persecuting the church, he also persecuted the Lord Himself. A wound that apparently if we 
read his writings careful, carefully enough, a wound that seemed to last the rest of his life. In Galatians, he recounts this very issue, chapter 1 of Galatians. He tells them how devoted he was, how passionate he was. Chapter 1, verse 13, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. It's telling, isn't it, how he describes his persecution of the church there in Galatians 1? Violently. We know that to be true. He went around the country with letters and chains dragging people to prison for believing in Jesus. He says, he admits to the Galatians, I didn't just persecute it, I tried to destroy the bride of Christ. And what's more, he believed he was right in doing so. He didn't think his intentions or his actions were evil. He thought they were zealous in the name of God. Romans chapter 10, he gives us another clue. In verses 1-4, through he says, I bear them witness, talking about the Israelite people, that they have a zeal for God, yet without knowledge. You know why he can bear that witness? Because he was one of them. He had a passion for the things of God. A misplaced passion that led him to actually be opposite of God and opposed to God and persecute the bride of Christ. Yet, in Philippians 3, he says, it was all done out of pure extremist zeal for the traditions of my fathers. Verse 6, the last phrase, it's another summary phrase, when it comes to righteousness under the law, when it comes to keeping the law, I was blameless. Makes me think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus recounts a couple of things to him about the law. And he says, all of these, the whole law I've kept since my youth. Paul would have made that same boast. I was blameless. So he believed. Above reproach, above accusation, without spot or blemish, no error, no lacking, no disregard for righteousness. See, when it comes to both his heritage and his behavior, Paul says, I was impeccable. I did all the right things. Believed all the right things. Said all the right things. Came from all the right places. Had the right parents. The right grandparents. The right siblings. Not an ounce of my life was against me walking with and obeying God. That's what he wholeheartedly believed until a particular day when he's walking down a road that leads to Damascus. 
And all of a sudden, a bright light appears and a voice speaks. And his life has changed forever. And in that moment, when he met Christ, he realized on the balancing scales, all his prestigious heritage, all his impeccable efforts and works, his righteous, spotless behavior, his publicly being above reproach, his immense knowledge of all things Scripture, his theological discourse and language and and comprehension, all of it meant nothing. It is the number one lie perpetrated by the enemy of Christ that most Every person believes or thinks deep in his or her heart that I am to the core good and good enough. And on the day when I stand before Christ, my goodness will outweigh my badness. Christ Himself tells us such things. In Matthew chapter 7, He says, Many will stand before Me on the day of judgment. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that and the other and do it all in Your name? And what's the response of Christ? Leave. I don't know you. All the right situation. All the right works. All the right words. All the right family heritage. And on the end, it comes down to this very singular pointed matter. Does Christ know you and do you know Him? Paul says, I had all reason to boast. All reason for confidence. And it didn't matter. Wasted effort. Wasted years. Everyone told me how good I was. Everyone looked up to me as an example. Everyone thought I was incredibly godly. I went to synagogue or church every day. And none of it made me right before God. You know you don't have to be a Jew to believe such things. There are people sitting in chairs here this morning and chairs all over this part of the state this morning who deep down in their heart believe the very same thing. That my assurance before God is built on my ability. That if I'm really honest, what comforts me in thinking about judgment, what comforts me in thinking about standing before Christ after I've died, is not His work and my trusting in His promise. It's my ability to be good enough. That I prayed enough. I went to church enough. I surrounded myself with Christian friends. I listened to Christian music. I read Christian articles. I didn't watch that movie. And I didn't watch this TV show. And I didn't listen to that. And I didn't do this. You and I know, both know, that deep down in your heart, you are looking to your own efforts for your assurance. The only right response to have true, genuine, saving faith is verse 7. 
this massively interrupting word. Now for anybody, Paul's testimony is mind-boggling, but especially for his fellow Jewish people, it's mind-boggling. Everything Paul had been raised in, everything Paul had done, set his life on the trajectory of being at the very top. His nationalistic pride, his religious zeal, all of it could have led to immense worldly greatness. And yet, he responds to it all with this very massive interrupting word, but... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That word whatever is all-inclusive. We might say anything I regarded as gain. It's because all of our efforts and all of our achievements and all of our works, all of the things we boast in and find pride in, apart from Christ, is actually worthless. You do not know true saving faith until you come to the place of verse 7. You know what's remarkable about salvation? And, and I praise God for this. Is that we don't have to be perfect theologians to be saved. We don't have to know everything to be saved. You don't have to explain to me the Trinity to be able to get into the baptismal waters. But you do have to abandon self. You don't have to know it all. But you have to surrender it all. Christ says if you follow Me, you have to deny yourself. He says, whoever loses his life, then he will save it and find it. And Paul says, you have to come to this place where you look at all your own fleshly abilities, whether the works of your hand or the beliefs in your heart, and you say, I have nothing. All I have is Christ. And He's enough. He's all we need. We don't need this heritage. We don't need this long list of achievements. Isn't there great comfort in that for you this morning? Maybe you came from a worthless background. Maybe your heritage, your ancestry, your upbringing was pure filth. Maybe your past was trash. And the good news for you is, it doesn't matter. And maybe you're sitting here and you think about your life. And up to this point, my behavior has been nothing less than wicked. My acts have been disgusting. My life is marked by unrighteous, unrighteousness. I put on a good show on the outside, but I know in my heart, and I know in the privacy of my own home, that I am depraved. And the good news is for you, it doesn't matter. The only thing you and I need to be right with God is salvation in Christ. Now don't mishear me. That salvation produces certain things. But that's not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about having true, genuine salvation. And your past can be horrible. And your previous behavior before today can be horrible. And it can be perfect and spotless. And both mean nothing. Christ means everything. 
And so Paul says, whatever gain I thought I had, whatever achievement I thought I had, I had grabbed, I counted as loss. We're going to get into some of this later, but in verse 7, it's the past tense. Verse 8, it'll be the, the present tense, and, and we'll go through verse 9 and think about all of those things. But, but it's verse 7 that we're looking at this morning. I counted is past tense. That's what it means. It means to look back on your life, if you're examining your heart today, and say, has there ever been a moment that I counted everything as loss, and Christ as my only treasure, my only gain? You see, Paul didn't just give up everything for the sake of everything. It's not as if we're espousing the opposite of the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says, have faith and you'll get everything. The opposite of that, the poverty gospel, is have faith and you have to give everything up. That's not what we're espousing. What we're saying here is faith produces loss of, of heritage, of behavior, of self, not just for the sake of loss, but specifically for the sake of Christ. That I may gain Christ that I may have Christ, that I may be found in Christ. Remember what Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. And for today's message, that means you can't be your own Lord and Christ be your Lord also. To have Christ, you have to submit to Christ. And to submit to Christ means to have eternal life and joy and privilege. Remember, after all, verse 1 is a command. God commands you to have joy. It's not as if God's a cosmic killjoy, not wanting you to have worldly, uh, not, not worldly pleasure, but pleasure in the world. Of course God delights in your joy. But He's telling us the only joy comes not in our ability to build our resume, but only in forsaking everything to gain Jesus Christ. I don't know if I've ever been this direct this as I'm going to be right now, but I just really feel, if I may use that word, led by the Lord to say this morning, if you are the one putting on a good show, but you've never counted it all as loss and clung only to Christ, Today may be your day of salvation. And don't let the day pass by. Will you finally give up on what everybody else thinks? And will you finally give up on being able to get your life under control? And will you finally throw it all away and come to Christ? And Christian this morning, are you certain that Christ is your only hope? Not just in word. Not just in thought. Do you believe that in your heart? Let our church not be a church full of people with false assurance. Have you really abandoned everything to know Jesus? Is He the only trust for your eternity? The only hope for your future? And if He is, if today you have that assurance, would you join me in praising the God of heaven and earth? 
That He saves us in spite of our heritage and our behavior. That He offered His only Son. And showed us the plane and the pathway to salvation. And freely gave it to us when we called on Him. Praise God that many of us can say with Paul that by the grace of God, I give up me so that I can have Him. Father in Heaven, I feel as if today I've been a bit more direct and forceful. But I also sense that I may be right in doing so. Ultimately, Lord, I confess I just do not know. All I do this morning is trust into Your hands the results and effects of Your Word. And with great eagerness pray that today the lost would be saved. They would come and join with me as a brother or a sister in seeking You and repenting of sin and finding salvation. And Your children, after we've examined ourselves, I pray with all might, Lord, that we would be such a grateful people. Because while we were still sinners, You delighted in saving us. That You gave Your Son. That You led us to abandon all and embrace Jesus. That we have lost everything in this world and gained everything in all eternity. That is purely by Your love. Lord, please have Your full way with us this morning. 